Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vincent. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also, check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. We are back in the saddle today after the holiday season. I took a week off of doing the podcast, and we had the live stream of the pre-recorded episode I did with Khalil the other day, but this is really... Uh, you know, kind of getting back into the saddle with regards to the, you know, the the meat and potatoes of what we do every week. So hopefully, uh, you know, it won't be too out of it. Uh, it's been very busy, but glad to be back and looking forward to um, some further discussion. So today uh, we're going to be looking at the Lutheran Order Salutis. There is a video that was put out by uh, Dr. Jordan Cooper over at Justin Center talking about the Lutheran Order Salutis. It's not a long video, uh, but I want to play through it and talk about some of the things in it. I think there's some very important implications that are, excuse me, very important implications that are going to come out in this video as it relates to Cooper's discussion of the Lutheran Order Salutis, as it relates to justification especially. There are some areas that really need to be talked about and discussed um, that are going to, you know, have some pretty serious implications as we go along here. Um, and I think this goes back to the the principle that we need to make sure that as we are discussing theology, as we're discussing uh, the Word of God, as it relates to core issues, that we are speaking in a way that is. Uh, clear and concise in a way that is, sorry, just in my microphone here, uh, in a way that's clear and concise and that doesn't mislead people into thinking uh, different things about the gospel, especially on the, you know, as it relates to these core issues. And that's really where we're going with this in terms of the core issues, because uh, this is about the gospel. This is about the heart of our faith. This isn't some secondary matter that we can go, oh, you know, we can just disagree and we move on. This is not something we can do at all with regards to that. We're talking about how we're made right before God and how we're made to stand before him judicially righteous and acceptable according to his justice. And so we have to make sure that we're speaking of that clearly. Now, that doesn't mean that every implication of justification we're going to know right off the bat. Uh, we're going to grow in our understanding of these things and the implications of these things as we grow in the faith. There's going to be an understanding of, oh, wow, this actually impacts this, and this actually impacts this, and oh, wow, I didn't realize that this impacts what I'm talking about here, or whatever the case might be. We grow in our knowledge of that. Now, there are certain things that really go to the heart of the gospel message, and I think that's what we'll uh, kind of be going at today. Now, I want to be clear that I'm not accusing Dr. Cooper of um, being a heretic or uh, that he's not a Christian. I want to be careful about that. I, I believe that he is. I think he's being very inconsistent, but I don't think he takes his inconsistency far enough to where I'd you know, write him out of the kingdom. But I think it's a serious error nonetheless in terms of the things that we will talk about today in the Justin Center video that uh, we'll be looking at. So we'll go ahead and dive right in. I'm going to pull up the video here. I only have two screens, so I'm going to have to kind of bounce back and forth a little bit here. But we'll go ahead and dive right in. Where, you know, the way we'll speak of an ordo salutis, for example, uh, will be a little different than what you find within the Reformed tradition. In that I think our Ordo Salutis is a bit less clean and neat than the Reformed. And I think you'll find that with our theology generally, uh, which is a criticism from the Reformed side is that like we are kind of illogical and our system isn't tight enough and all that stuff. Uh, we would, of course. Uh, yes, it, I think that's a valid criticism. And we'll, I think we'll see an example of that here uh, in a moment as we're looking at the Ordo Salutis. Yes, it, it's, it is illogical. It's not consistent with scripture. It is messy. And there's a reason for that is because it's it's not biblical. So yes, just because something isn't neat and clean does not necessarily mean it's false. It could just be in the way it's being presented that something could be 
presented in the wrong way, even though what the truth that you're communicating is is there, it could just be the presenter's problem. But I think as we'll see in this case, it's not the presenter's problem. It's the theology itself that's messy, illogical, unbiblical. So it's just kind of funny that he mentions that. It's kind of a preamble like, yeah, I know this is probably going to look messy, but but what we're saying is true. And, and I'm going to say no, that, you know, that's clearly not the case. And actually, the criticism that you're taking, uh, that you say the reformic view is actually true, given this particular scenario just contend that we're we're trying to take all of scripture as it is and, and that the scriptural system is yeah. not always as tight as we may want it to be but we accept what god's told us so uh in terms of justification there we would say that justification we wouldn't use the language of process right because that's rome's view is that justification is progressive or that justification mm -hmm. is a process that can increase or decrease uh and we would not say that that's true of justification just what justification is, is it's a divine verdict. Uh, as I already said, justification ultimately is really a verdict that was placed on Christ. That's the foundation of it. My being justified is simply a declaration that I am in Christ and I am in that declaration that he is righteous. Now, that is good. And as far as it goes, um, you know, we believe as as Christians, we are justified by the declaration of God declaring us righteous, not because of our own works, as we'll see, not because of our own works, but because of what Christ did, his act of obedience, his passive obedience. If if you're following along in the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, that would be chapter 11 of justification. It talks about Christ's active and passive obedience being imputed to us, his active obedience being his life lived and fulfilling the two tables of the law that Adam failed to keep loving God perfectly, loving neighbor perfectly, according to God's law. And that obedience is imputed to us, right? Because somebody had to keep the law. God's law required perfection. He can't let anyone into his kingdom apart from there being perfection on our part, right? So there has to be some sort of fulfillment of that law there. And the only person that did that was Christ. So it's Christ's or active obedience that's imputed to us, but also his passive obedience. That obedience of dying on the cross, fulfilling the just requirements of the law, which is eternal condemnation, right? And so it's very interesting, um, you know, that we see that here. And it's very important that we, we point that out. Brother, Federal Theology... Uh, the, the $10 sub. Thank you so much, brother. Uh, glad you could join us today on the show. I appreciate your support of the ministry, and I hope today is beneficial and, and helpful. Really appreciate your support of the ministry. Thank you so much, brother. All right. Uh, but, you know, what, what Cooper is saying here is right in as far as it goes in terms of our standing for God. We don't believe in a process theology as it relates to justification. And that is true. That is Rome's view. We do see uh, justification really being on the basis of what we do, right? There is this, you know, if it's based on what we do, there's obviously going to be some sort of progression or there's going to be some sort of uh, minimization of that justification. Uh, and it's not necessarily solely based on what we do. They would agree that Christ's blood and his death has something to do with it. But our works subjectively, we are infused with righteousness. So there are things that we're doing that are contributing to that justification, and we deny that. It's only judicial. It's an imputation of righteousness to us that allows us to be uh, to, to have a right standing before God, and that's a crucial distinction. So we agree with him as far as it goes in there that we are declared righteous. That's Luther's teaching, and we're going to see some—I'll uh, be working with Luther's commentary on Romans here briefly and talking a little bit about atonement. Uh, but in as far as that goes with regards to uh, Cooper, that is good. Uh, which, in turn, is my, um, we would say, my eschatological vindication received now. You know, and I know that sounds maybe complex, but it's the idea that the final judgment, right, is is our being declared that we are right before the Father. And the final judgment means that we will be with him eternally. Um, we can receive that judgment here and now in justification. Amen. Love it. But in the meantime, while we... So this is an interesting take. So he he's seeing justification at the end of the day as being eschatological. 
eschatological and what does that mean and hold on i comment on instagram here justin hall 33 said this video is just what the doctor ordered i've been dipping my toes in the lutheran waters for the better part of a year and comparing them with my current reformed baptist position well justin i hope this video is helpful um i think this is probably one of the more important distinctions between the reformed and the lutheran position especially given it has to do around the gospel so obviously it's going to be a, a critical distinction uh, so hopefully this helps to clear the waters uh, some bit. And thanks for joining today. Uh, anyways, looking, going back to what Cooper's saying, um, as it relates to uh, a eschatological understanding, eschatological has to do with end times, right? Eschatology, the study of end times. So when we say that something is eschatological or it's eschatological declaration, in this case, it's talking about what's going to, the declaration of that God is going to declare us righteous in time. So basically he's saying that something that's going to happen in the future is now present with us here. And this is going to be important because as he's going to develop his understanding of justification here, uh, that's going to come into play because he views justification in light of that eschatological reality that will come later. So we move on here. We are pilgrims on this earth, right? Awaiting the promised land. Um, as we, we receive that verdict, we can actually receive it repeatedly. And so I, I think that argument can be made scripturally very much so, so that we don't just have to talk about justification as a past tense reality at the beginning of the life of faith, but we can speak of justification in its future sense of we will be justified on the last day. But we also receive that verdict in our lives here and now in the present. Mm. And so scripture does, it can use a past tense for justification. Look at, you know, Romans 5.1, having been justified. That is a thing that happened in the past. It's a done deal. Scripture also, though, gives us several examples of individuals who are justified also in time in their life of faith. Now, this is where the key difference comes into play, right? Because now he's not just saying that we're declared righteous, right? That's all good and fine. We believe that. We have been declared righteous. But. He is now saying that we are justified repeatedly. We are declared righteous repeatedly. Okay. This is important as we're going through this um, and is a huge distinction between the reform position of justification. And I would even argue Luther's, at least Luther's initial position uh, and the position of later Lutheranism, I would say, uh, because you're looking now at uh, I, I think even really a development because I, I did some research to see, did Luther even believe this? And I haven't been able to find anything And it. There, he may have held to a repeated justification view. I'm willing to be corrected, but I have not been able to find anything. Okay. So if Dr. Cooper, if you're listening to this uh, and you want to correct me on that, please, but I have not been able to find anything where Luther talks about this idea of repeated justification. I have a feeling that it's something that developed later uh in lutheranism and is not something original to luther uh it at least in especially you know in reform circles we do learn a lot about luther luther is a very important character because of how much we treasure the doctrine of uh justification right we treasure the doctrine of justification we love the doctrine of justification we see it as uh, a gospel issue it's part of the gospel it's not something that's negotiable right? It's not a secondary matter. And we learn about Luther. We learn about his development of coming to faith in Christ, his realization that he's made right before God because of the work of Christ through faith, not through repeated confession, not through suffering as a monk, not through sleeping on cold floors, not through constant confession like he did to his, uh, his quote, father in the faith, Staupitz in constant confession to him, thinking that he was somehow going to deal with his sin problem in that way. We Luther believed in a, in a legal declaration, a legal declaration. And I have not been able to find anything that teaches that he taught this. Again, I'm willing to be corrected. I'm not making a dogmatic statement, but I, I have a suspecting feeling that that is the case given um, you know, my own study of Luther and just what we know about Luther justification, it doesn't seem that's the case. Um, but, you know, I digress in that point. But this is a critical 
difference between the Reformed position and the Lutheran position. Okay, Lutherans believe that we can be justified again and again. And this is going to become problematic because we're going to see, as we dive into Scripture here, this has implications for the atonement itself, for the work of Christ on the cross, for uh, the, the law itself, we'll see in Romans 7. So we're going to dive into some scriptures here to talk about this. And it's really the, the impact that it has upon the atonement, I think, is the biggest, the biggest issue here, right? So does one need to be justified again and again? We deny against the Lutherans. And I'm, I'm kind of using the scholastic method of Turretin here, where he would declare a question or state a question and then give his answer, right? We deny against the Socinians. We deny against the Arminians or whatever the case might be. Oh, I'm, I'm kind of using his rhetoric here. Does one need to be justified again and again? We deny against Lutherans. Justification is a one-time declaration of judicial righteousness by means of faith alone because of Christ's active and passive obedience. Okay? So we receive that work by faith. It's done. We're made right before God. It's taken care of. Justification is God taking Christ's finished work and imputing it to us. And this especially is seen in his death imputed to us in his passive obedience. So if we look at Romans 3, which is a, we should all know this, at least generally speaking, as it relates to, uh, you know, being Reformed Christians. Uh, this is Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe for there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here we see that Christ satisfied the wrath of God by his death. That's what a propitiation is. A propitiation is a sacrifice that appeases wrath, right? It appeases uh, the wrath of a God, if you're just taking the word generally speaking. But specifically here, as it relates to the God of Scripture, it appeases the wrath of God against sin. It satisfies his justice. Okay, John Gill in his commentary on Romans 3.25, he says, quote, Christ is the propitiation to God for sin, which must be understood of his making satisfaction to divine justice for the sins of his people. These were imputed to him and being found on him. The law and justice of God made demands on him for them, which he answered to satisfaction by his obedience and sacrifice in which, as it could not be done by any other, nor in any other way, is expressed by reconciliation and atonement, whence God be said to be pacified or made propitious, end quote. So the wrath of God is satisfied. God's justice is satisfied. Sin is taken care of. Christ was imputed with our sins, so he is truly punished for our sins. Right, I shouldn't say truly, but justly punished for our sins. God can't punish an innocent person, right? So he has to be imputed with our sins so he can actually be punished as a guilty person, judicially speaking. And so justice is satisfied on all fronts. It's taken care of, okay? So if Christ has indeed paid for the sins of the people of God by satisfying God's justice, which includes his wrath against sin, then there is no chance of God ever directing his wrath toward us, judicially speaking, now, we'll talk about God's wrath a little bit later uh, that happens in time, or that's displayed in effect in time, right? Uh, as we live our lives and as we're sinning uh, in time. But when we're talking about the, the judicial seat of God in terms of his judicial tribunal, standing before God, his wrath has been satisfied. It's done. There's no need for constant declaration of righteousness none of that okay so if god's wrath is satisfied at the cross judicially speaking in terms of our ultimate standing before god in his tribunal there is no way that god could ever direct his wrath his judicial wrath towards us again now what cooper's view grants is that could happen right because if god is declaring us righteous again and again and again we're being justified again and again and again 
up until the eschatological justification where we'll be finally declared righteous, that implies that we can now scoot from underneath the justification, the declaration of righteousness, and then scoot back into condemnation. And then we can scoot back into justification, scoot back into condemnation. And that implies that the wrath of God still hasn't been satisfied. And it undermines the purpose of the cross, which is to satisfy the wrath of God, to satisfy God's justice. Right? There's still more to do if you take his view. Right? And then the question becomes, were the sins of God's people imputed to Christ? If so, then Christ was justly punished for all of them. Right? Past, present, and future, God's righteous demands were met. End of discussion. There's no room for any more for this kind of talk. Uh, I want to read a little bit from Luther's, this is his commentary on Romans. Uh, really helpful work. I found this at a used bookstore, interestingly enough. Uh, but he talks about, on page 78, page 78, he talks about atonement, and he uses the same language here that we see in the text, and very similar language to John Gill as it relates to uh, atonement. Uh, let's see here. This is this is the section. This is on verse 25 of chapter 3. Luther says, quote, This is a perplexing and difficult text that must be explained and understood as follows. God from eternity has ordained and set forth Christ as the propitiation for our sins, but that only for those who believe in him. Well, you see particular... Uh, you see particular atonement coming out here, right? It's not a universal atonement. It's an atonement only for those uh, the sins of his people. So that's interesting that Luther brings that out. Only for those who believe in him. Christ wanted to become that only for those... Oh, I'm sorry. Christ wanted to become a propitiation for us only through his blood. That is, he first had to make amends for us through the shedding of his blood. And all this God did to declare his righteousness... That is to make it known that all men are sinners and in need of his righteousness. The very fact that Christ suffered for us and through his suffering became a propitiation for us proves that we are by nature unrighteous and that we are uh, we are for whom he became a propitiation, must obtain our righteousness solely from God. Now that forgiveness for our sins has been secured by Christ's atonement, by the fact that God forgives our sins only through Christ's propitiation and so justifies justifieth us by faith. He shows how necessary his righteousness for all. There is no one whose sins are not forgiven in Christ, end quote. So you see very similar language here with what's being used by John Gill, especially as it relates to atonement, that this is atoning for uh, the sins of the people. It's, it's taking care of the problem. So I find it hard to believe that Luther you know, would have taken the view that Cooper has here. And even if he did, given what I've already said about the implications of this in relation to the cross itself, it would have been inconsistent, right? So even if Luther did have that, he would have been consistent. But he's using the language of propitiation, atonement, the wrath of God was satisfied on the cross. It was taken care of. Uh, federal theology, always find some gems in the thrift store. Yet, yeah, I have this thrift store that I go to here uh, in Northern Virginia called McKay's. Uh, it's like McKay's used books and something like that, but I've been going there for years. And sometimes you'll find things like this. I found a Reformation study Bible. I found commentaries uh, in pretty good condition and for a decent price. Uh, you just, you know, you, you're just perusing the the religious section and, you know, you come across something, a, a gold mine and you get a really good deal on it. So thrift stores are really good places to find some of these books that might otherwise be pretty expensive to get online. But anyways, um, but yeah, it Luther would be inconsistent at this point. And I, I think uh, that even if Cooper could produce something that Luther said to this effect, they would still have to get around the problem of the implications that it has on the cross itself uh, and its purpose. Okay. Now looking, kind of going back a little bit to the imputation of uh, sin of our sins to Christ. If there is even one sin left that was not imputed to Christ, then I am still going to suffer eternal death since God justice demands I be punished for it, right? Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, right? Eternal death, eternal punishment, uh, which really is in the form of, uh, you know, which is really just the wrath of God. 
at the end of the day. So, you know, it, from Christ's perspective, right, if if every sin is imputed to Christ, Christ uh, is being punished justly uh, because he has been, you know, imputed with with all of our sins. OK, so all these things are important as we're discussing discussing these uh, these issues. All right, looking at Hebrews 9. Now, this, I think, is the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 9 and 10, I think, speak more clearly to this issue than anywhere else that I've seen in Scripture because it, it does the comparison between the atonement, uh, the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 and the sacrifices related to that as well, and then compares that to Christ's sacrifice and using that to compare the Old Covenant, New Covenant Christ is the better. The Old Covenant is passing away, etc., so let's look at Romans 9, 23 through 28. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better, uh, with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but in heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should suffer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to whose, uh, to those who eagerly wait for it. Him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And I saw a comment here on Instagram. Justin Hall said, is what Dr. Cooper is talking about different from those who take a final justification position? Um, it's a good question. And you might be thinking of like a John Piper or somebody like that. I'd have to do a deep, deeper analysis of that to really say it's a really good question. But I think there's some similarity, right? Because if Cooper is saying that we are not going to be justified for all time until, you know, the, the eschaton, until the end times, then it would follow that it's similar to a final justification that you might find like in a, a John Piper. Um, but I think there's there's probably going to be some nuances there. I couldn't tell you which they were, but I, I'm just not seeing them as being exactly the same right now. But I think at the very least, in the sense that there is some sort of final declaration of righteousness, uh, even though those might look different in the end, I think the principles surrounding those are going to be at the very least similar. Uh, I just want to be careful. I don't say something that I'm, I'm not privy to or I haven't studied very well. But I think there there's definitely some similarities there at the very least. Um, and it is kind of interesting that someone like a Piper would take a similar position to a Lutheran, but okay. Uh, good question though. All right. So going back to Hebrews nine. So the writer of Hebrews is saying here that Christ's sacrifice was done once, once. Why? Because his sacrifice did what the old covenant, old covenant sin offering could not. Okay. Remember Leviticus chapter 16, the day of atonement is, is uh, set up and this the writer of Hebrews is referring back to that day of atonement, those sacrifices of bulls and goats, right? That the people had to make every year in order to uh, deal with sin, but it was temporary. It wasn't something that was taken care of in an ultimate sense for all time, right? This wasn't something that was taken care of uh, once for all. This was something they had to continuously do. So while God's wrath was appeased, it was not appeased forever. It was only appeased until they sinned again, right? Which, again, is similar to what Cooper is saying, right? And it's interesting because Cooper's view is more in line with the Old Covenant understanding of how sin was dealt with rather than the New Covenant understanding of how sin was dealt with. Because in the New Covenant understanding, sin is taken care of forever because of what Christ did. That's what the writer of Hebrews is contrasting. He's contrasting with what the Old Covenant did, those sacrifices they had to keep doing every year. It didn't take away sin. It didn't deal with the sin problem, right? But Christ, like it says in verse 26, he has appeared to put away sin 
by the sacrifice of himself. So what the old covenant sacrifices couldn't do and didn't do, Christ did. It's done. It's dealt with. Those sacrifices, they had to be done on a repeated basis. There had to be a uh, reappeasement of the wrath of God, right? Every year until they sinned again. But Christ appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's done. It's taken care of, right? So it dealt with that problem, right? The sins of the new covenant members that were laid out in chapter 8, the previous chapter. So the writer of Hebrews sets the stage for what uh, the new covenant looks like. Those members of the new covenant are the people of God. And Jesus is the mediator of that covenant. And covenantal language is used in scripture. If you're in Christ, you receive these benefits as the federal head of that covenant. If you're in Adam, you receive the, quote, benefits of Adam, that you're, you receive sin and death. Uh, but in Christ, you receive eternal life. You're united to him, the mediator of that covenant, right? And the sins of the covenant members were placed on the Lamb, 2 Corinthians 5.21. So Christ was slain, satisfying God's justice, and there was no more justice to be satisfied. It was done. The sins were put away, right? It is done. Otherwise, Christ would have to be sacrificed all the time since he would uh, be just like the old covenant sacrifice that couldn't deal with sin. But Christ's anti-type offering, remember you have that distinction in covenant theology between the type, which is the shadow that's pointing forward, it points forward to the fulfillment, which is the anti-type. So Christ's sacrifice is the anti-type of these particular uh, sacrifices in the Old Testament. But that offering put away sin, so there are no more sacrifices needed. It was actually effectual. It actually dealt with the problem of sin where those other sacrifices could not. And again, this is in parallel to Leviticus 16 at the Day of Atonement. So that means those sacrifices in the Day of Atonement itself were all pointing forward to Christ's sacrifice. They're picturing it. Okay. So now let's jump forward to chapter 10, chapter 10 of Hebrews. This is verses 11 through 18. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Okay, again, he's emphasizing again, these cannot deal with the problem. It only temporarily pacifies the wrath of God, but they have to come back every year because they sin again, right? Doesn't take care of the problem. Verse 12, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made of his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my law into their hearts and in their, in their minds, I will write them. Then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds. I'll remember no more. Now, verse 18. Now, where there is remission of these... There is no longer an offerings for sin. So where sin is forgiven forever, where sins are taken care of, there's no longer an offering for sin. So if Christ's offering did not deal with sin, he would have to be sacrificed again and again and again. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. But Christ only died once. So that means that our eternal sin problem or our sin problem has been dealt with in an ultimate sense. It's done. There's no longer any condemnation. We don't have to stand under the wrath of God. There's one justification. And we stand under that based on what Christ did, period. That's it. End of discussion. And so I get frustrated when I hear things like this because it just seems so basic to me. Like the, this is something that no Christian should be toying with or playing around with. It's such a basic thing. It's frustrating that we even have to talk about this. Uh, is this is I mean, this is so basic to to the faith. Um and again, that doesn't mean everyone's going to understand every implication of the gospel. But I mean, this is so critical that you should have at least some grasp of it, uh, even as a new believer, that, you know, Christ's work is done and you're in there's nothing else. You're satisfied. You're you know, you stand before God perfected, judicially speaking. You don't have to worry about these things. So it is kind of frustrating that uh, you do see these kind of uh, mistakes being made. But again, you see see these principles here. And then finally, looking at Romans chapter 7, 
Romans chapter 7, 5 through 6, it says, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So Paul says, We are no longer under the law as condemning in the judicial sense, but now we are in Christ. We are free from that law's condemnation. And in fact, it says we're dead to the law. It doesn't just say we're free from it. We're dead to it. How in the world, if something's dead, if you're dead to that thing, how can it come back alive? It's dead, right? It can't come back alive. So how in the world can I go back under the law's condemning uh, hammer? How could I go under that if I'm dead to it in Jesus Christ? You can't. So again, Luther's or uh, Luther uh, Cooper's view grants that we can go under that. Now, I want to be clear. I don't think he'd ever say that, but that's where it leads to if taken there logically. That's the necessary implication of it and why you can't hold to that position. Right. So we're dead to the law. We're no longer under the law. We're no longer under the law. We're under grace. Right. That doesn't mean we don't obey the law in our daily lives. But in terms of that judicial hand that was standing over us in terms of a condemning state before God's tribunal, we have died to what we were held by because we're in Jesus Christ. We've been freed from that. We're no longer under it. So there's no way we can go back under the condemning nature of the law. So that's kind of, I think, the exegetical argument that I'm going to make here. And I'm, I'm going to continue to play uh, the video here. So let me pull it up again. And we will move on. But that's really kind of addressing Cooper's core argument here. Um, so if you look at Romans 4, which is kind of the, the classic, I think the strongest text for sola fide in scripture is the entirety of Romans 4 and the logic of Paul's argument there. Um, but if you look at that argument, he, Paul grabs onto two figures of the Old Testament as examples of justification by faith. The examples are Abraham and David. So he goes to Genesis 15 and Psalm 32. Now, if you look at Genesis 15, uh, it, it says that Abraham believed in the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Right. Genesis 15, 6. Pretty, pretty popular, mm -hmm. famous text. Well, when did Abraham's life of faith begin? Clearly not in Genesis 15 at that moment. Mm -hmm. I mean, Genesis 12 was a story of Abraham. He leaves his homeland to follow God. He's used as an example of faith in Hebrews 11 in Genesis 12. So his justification happens in Genesis 15. Same with David. What do we see? A, a psalm about, uh, you know, blessed is the one whose sin is covered, his transgression is forgiven. Right. It's an example of, of being in a place of repentance and receiving forgiveness. So in other words, we have to recognize that the grace of God in even that verdict of justification and the forgiveness of sins is something that we receive continually. So he's going to use the examples of Romans 4, right? So he's talking about Abraham in relation to Genesis 15. We see in Romans 4, Paul uses... Uh, Abraham is an example. Talk about what faith looks like. Abraham believed God and it was counted him for righteousness. Now, it seems to me, and this is, you know, after I consulted with, uh, you know, a, a frequent, fairly frequent guest on the show, Andrew Warwick, who's, he's going to be coming on again soon. Uh, but we were talking about this and, uh, you know, one of the things that we kind of came to as we were talking about this was, it is true that Abraham believed in Genesis 12 when he heard the promise, right? That promise of in you shall all the nations be all the nations shall be blessed, right? Or your seed will be as numerous as the sand of the seashore, whatever the case is. In other words, he's going to have a great inheritance. He's going to have a, a great amount of descendants. And obviously that's it's referring to a spiritual descendant. It, you see this principle in Genesis 15 and Genesis 12. It seems that Genesis 15 isn't saying that he is, well, clearly he's not. It's not given what we've already discussed in other places in scripture. But in terms of how to, you know, narrow down kind of the chronology of, of Abraham's faith, Abraham was justified in Genesis 12 when he believed God and he left his home and he went, you know, on to a new land. We see that from Gen from Hebrews chapter 11. It says that by faith, Abraham left his country, right? He went to a, a land he didn't know. That was by faith. And that's clearly salvific faith because of verse 6 of chapter 11 of Hebrews. 
without faith, it is impossible to please God. So it had to be a saving faith. So what do we make of this, right? Well, it, it looks like that Abraham was not believing again. Well, clearly he wasn't believing again, given what we said. But that the text is really just stating what happened to Abraham, right? Not that it's saying that it happened again, but that it this is really just laying out the principle of how Abraham was made right before God, regardless of where it fell in the timeline, right? And so that... Uh, I think that's probably the best explanation of how to deal with those things. Um, I had, I have to admit, when I listened to this, as, as I was preparing for this, um, that did kind of throw me off a little bit. Not that I, you know, thought his view was in any way correct. It was just like, wow, how do I respond to that? Because the timeline makes it a little bit difficult. But when you see Genesis 15 as making a declaration, just stating what happened to Abraham in principle, rather than specifying the chronology of it, it makes a lot more sense, especially given that Genesis 15 is simply repeating what happened in Genesis 12, right? It's simply God is restating the promise, right, of what already happened to Abraham. And then given what we've already talked about in uh, these other Romans 7, Hebrews 9, 10, Romans 3, all these different places that lay out that it can't be Cooper's view. Um, I think, you know, that view probably fits. I think that view fits the best. I think that view fits the best. Um, so hopefully that's helpful. And then he mentions David again, uh, and he's going to tie forgiveness and make an identical justification. Here. So we can't just put it in, in this punctiliar sense that one event that happened in our life, and then that's it. Why is it that we pray for forgiveness daily, right? Why in the Lord's Prayer do we say, forgive us, forgive our sins, right? Instead of just saying, thank you that my sins have already been forgiven. Um, and, you know, Paul uses in Romans 4, that Psalm 32 example of as forgiveness of sins as really a synonym for justification. You know, justification has other, you know, things tied to it as well. But, um, but when we think of the forgiveness of sins, we're thinking justification. So if you need forgiveness daily, then you need justification daily. No, 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 <laughs> absolutely not. Absolutely not. In David's case, in Romans 4, which I, I think is a reference to Psalm 32, Jesus, uh, Paul is, or uh, sorry, David is saying that blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, right? And Paul is saying that this is referring to the one who's been justified, right? So he's interpreting the Old Testament in light of New Testament revelation. With that said, the context upon which that is being given is in the context of judicial forgiveness and judicial justification. That is important, and Cooper doesn't talk about that here, right? He doesn't make that distinction between a judicial forgiveness and a subjective forgiveness that happens in time as we commit the sins, right? It's just because God has forgiven us of our sins judicially doesn't mean we're not going to commit those sins. The very fact that God is forgiving us of those sins means that we've either committed them or, you know, all of those, all of us who came 2000 years later, we hadn't even lived yet and lived in sin. Uh, and so God is forgiving us for things we haven't even done yet. So we, there will be a living out of those sins in time. Okay. And those are displeasing to God. Uh, as we live them out in time, right? They are displeasing to God. It doesn't make it any less displeasing um, to God. But we have to make a distinction between judicial forgiveness, where God forgives us based on the record, uh, our record being imputed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and a subjective forgiveness, where we are forgiven on a daily basis. Um, and, and again, Andrew was talking with him, and he mention like a fatherly forgiveness, right? A fatherly forgiveness, a distinction between judicial forgiveness and fatherly forgiveness, where a father forgives a son who uh, sins against him. That's very different than a judicial forgiveness standing before the law of God and his tribunal, right? In terms of condemnation, there's a distinction there that we have uh, to make between those things, which Cooper doesn't make. He just conflates everything together and says, well, forgiveness of sins is used uh, you know, in Romans four, it's synonymous with justification. So if we have to be forgiven daily, that means we have to be justified daily. 
And of course, that's we've already demonstrated that's ridiculous. So subjective forgiveness would be pictured in a place like First John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, and this is in a present tense verb, right? Confess if we're we're doing this. Okay, it's something that's ongoing. We will continue to sin as Christians, right? The fact that he's saying if we confess our sins is assuming that we're going to sin, right? So we need to confess our sins regularly and be cleansed subjectively. Okay. And John is talking to people who already believe by faith. These are Christians. These are people who are already justified and standing in Jesus Christ in that covenantal uh, framework and resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And then you have the objective forgiveness um, that we talked about. So Cooper conflates these categories, which, you know, makes it frustrating to deal with here because uh, they, they're not the same thing. They're just not the same thing based on what we've discussed already. Which means it not that it's a process, right? Not that it's progressing because it's perfect. That's the whole point of it. But it's really the the verdict of the last day breaking into our present reality here and now. And it does that day by day. And the means of grace are means by which God brings that reality to us. Yeah. And so we could say that, yes, you are justified through faith alone. You hear the word of God. The spirit has you know, given you faith. Your baptism then does not just become a symbol of some prior reality, but that is an additional means of grace that God gives mm. you. All right. Move this here. There we go. All right. So again, he he doesn't he doesn't at all make those proper distinctions that we talked about and that are needed to be made. Okay, and that's it's you can just see the implication. Hopefully, you can see the implications that this has, and how much of a mess it's going to make uh, the entire system of salvation. And, and going to the core of the faith, right? The death of Jesus Christ. That's the central message of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 1, right? When Paul talks about the gospel that he gave to the Corinthians that they believed and were saved by, what does he give? The death of Christ, right? Christ died, buried, rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the core message of the gospel. And this goes to the heart of that. Okay, that's why it, it's it's such a serious thing. But just some closing remarks here. Excuse me. Closing remarks here. One, toying with justification is dangerous. That should not, that should go without saying. It is a dangerous thing to toy with justification. The gospel is at stake. And I'm, I'm not accusing Dr. Cooper of, uh, I'm not accusing him of being a heretic. I'm not necessarily going to say that right now. I'm not accusing him of being an unbeliever. I'm not going to say that right now. But I think what he's saying here is very dangerous. It's very, very dangerous at the very least. Because we're toying with the gospel. And the gospel is the means by which God saves his people, at least from our perspective. It is the power of God for salvation. That's what it, uh, that's what it says in, in Romans chapter 1, verses 16. Right. It is the power of God of salvation to all who believe. So we have to be very careful that if we're toying with that power of God and what that message is, it's it can get messy really fast. I mean, you look at what happened in the church in Galatia, the strong language that Paul used um, about toying with the gospel and the mess that that makes. Right. People's souls are at stake and it's not something we can we can take lightly as we're, you know, dealing with these things, especially if we're evangelizing people, we tell them the right gospel, kind of tell them the right gospel. And all these things have to hold together into a co cohesive whole. God is not a God of contradiction, right? God does not contradict himself. He doesn't change. God is immutable, Malachi 3.6. So he's not going to contradict himself. I'm going to say a thing one day, say something one day, and then change his mind the next day and say, well, no, it's actually this. No, it's going to hold together and be consistent. God is God of truth. He is truth itself. So our system of the gospel should hold together cohesively in light of what the scriptures teach us. Okay, And this goes to uh, a further point here, that we need to be precise in our language. right? We need to be precise. Technical language isn't bad. 
Okay. Uh, I think there are tendencies among Christians, uh, and I, I see this in reform circles, unfortunately. I don't know how it is on the Lutheran side. But there, I think, is a tendency sometimes to shy away from big words, shy away from precise technical language. We have to be really careful about that. While we do need to try to speak to our audience where they are, not everyone's going to be, you know, have a head full of book knowledge or whatever the case might be. Not everyone's gone to seminary. There is a sensitivity we have to have to that. But at the same time, we do need to be precise in what we're saying. We need to be technical when it comes to these things. And if they're difficult, then we might have to, you know, come at it from a different point of view or not a different point of view, but a different way that explains it easier, brings it down to earth for people a little bit in the pew. But we still need to somewhat be technical, right? Because we need to be precise in our language to make sure we're communicating the right thing to our people, something as uh, precious and critical as the gospel. We have to do things like that. So I really wish uh, Dr. Cooper would have taken the biblical route in this case, but it seems that he's taken uh, some sort of, you know, this apparently is a Lutheran understanding. But I hope this has been helpful. You know, this isn't as long of an episode as as we might normally go. Uh, but I hope that this is helpful um, and beneficial, especially, uh, you know, Justin Hall on Instagram talking about, uh, you know, comparing Lutheranism with his current Reformed Baptist position. I really hope that this help clears up some things and helps you to see to stay away from Lutheranism. <laughs> uh, there are definitely things in Lutheranism that can be helpful uh, and that, you know, even us in the Reformed tradition would agree with, but we just have to be really, really careful that we don't, uh, you know, kind of go off the rails and, and just adopt everything that they say. We have to compare it with Scripture and look at what men uh, have written about these things before. And it's good to look at the uh, the Lutheran position, too, and, and read their stuff and compare it with Scripture and what the Reform may have, uh, have said on these issues. I think it's helpful. Oh, and I see Justin in here. Very helpful. Thank you. You're welcome, brother. I'm glad. I'm glad it was helpful. Um, but yeah, anyways, everyone, thank you for uh, your attention. Appreciate your time. Lord willing, we'll be back next week um, as we dive into some more stuff. We're going to be having some guests on the show. So stay tuned as we go through January and February. Uh, there's going to be some uh, having two guests on in, in January and then um two guests on in February. So more to come on, on the announcement of who those guests are. So we're going to have hopefully some really helpful content and some uh, good material from, from some guys that you guys um, can utilize. But anyways, uh, everyone have a great weekend and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Take care.